Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Zach Hodges. I'm a pediatrician here at the Medical College of Georgia and a recent graduate of our pediatric residency. Today's discussion will be on teaching in the healthcare setting. I'm excited we are joined by Dr. Lisa Leggio and Dr. Catherine McLeod, both faculty members here in the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia, and both are very active in medical student and resident education. Do both of you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about how you became interested in this topic? Hi, my name is Lisa Leggio. I'm a general pediatrician, and I've always enjoyed teaching in the clinical setting. I love seeing the light bulb go off when a student or resident understands something new. I've been the director of pediatric student education for 15 years and the vice chair for faculty development for two years. A large part of what I do is teach students and teach others how to teach. And I'm Katherine McLeod. I've worked in the nursery and the outpatient clinic, but now my focus is inpatient as a hospitalist. Several years ago, I realized I was becoming one of the older and more seasoned faculty. I've been lucky to work with two men, Dr. Jack Benjamin and Dr. Chris White, who mentored me and shaped pretty much everything I do, including how to teach. I decided that I wanted to focus on passing knowledge and clinical skills to new learners in the latter part of my career. Thanks. That's great. So as medical education becomes more multifaceted with simulation, online modules, instructional videos, and even podcasts, it's easy for new attendings like me to forget about the importance of bedside teaching. Since I've recently started my career in academic pediatrics, I've been thinking more about teaching and how to do it well. What initial advice do you have for someone like me who's just starting out and does not have any formal training in medical education? Zach, I have to say that working with the residents and students is my favorite part of my job. I love the teamwork of inpatient medicine, the deliberating on rounds, and watching learners grow. And I agree, teaching at the bedside is so important. For years, learners have been reading about disease processes, but when they hear a heart murmur or see Gotron's papules for the first time, it makes all the hours spent studying worthwhile and cements knowledge. I totally agree. You can learn from a book or online, but learning from the patient is key. Osler has a quote, Medicine is learned by the bedside and not in the classroom. It's a team sport, too. You know, you think of the teacher always pointing out things to the student, but sometimes the students notice things or look at things in a different way or ask a question about something you haven't thought of or that you haven't verified in the literature for a while. Learners really keep you on your toes and they keep you humble. That's great. It's encouraging that teaching has become such a meaningful part of both of your careers. It seems that the particular healthcare setting, whether inpatient or outpatient, may have a lot to do with how we best teach our students and residents. Yes, I really think it does. Outpatient clinic ends up being a lot of one-on-one, whereas inpatient care consists mainly of large groups of learners at different levels and on different paths. On rounds, I work with pediatric and family medicine residents, nurses, pharmacists, and medical students. My goal when teaching in this setting is to make connections with each learner so we all can learn something new from each case. I agree with that. Another thing that makes a big difference is the length of time you'll be working with the learner. In some clinics, students or residents may work with a different faculty member each day, and so you may not get much continuity. On the other hand, in some practices, the learner works with the same faculty for four to six weeks or over the course of a year and has opportunity to really see how they grow and develop personally and professionally. That makes sense. Maybe we can start by talking about the outpatient setting. Something that many of our listeners will know is that MCG's yearly enrollment has now increased to over 200 students, and not all of those students remain in Augusta for their third and fourth year clinical rotations. 
This means that we collaborate with many physicians and hospitals throughout the state to help our students get the clinical exposure that they need. Dr. Leggio, how do you help our community providers prepare to host medical students and also residents for their outpatient pediatric rotations? We try to prepare them ahead of time for their teaching role. We rely on pediatricians in the community to give students clinical experience. Often learners at community sites end up seeing more patients than at academic sites since there's typically only one learner in the practice instead of three or more like in our clinics. But it's not just at MCG. Other medical schools, osteopathic schools, and others are expanding nationally. There just isn't enough space or enough patients at some centers to accommodate all the learners. If you're teaching for a medical school, the clerkship director should let you know the student's objectives and requirements. Hopefully, they'll also give you tips for teaching and giving feedback and evaluating students. If you're hosting residents, then the program director should also be able to help. One of the most important first steps is orienting the learner to your practice. This includes basics like expected arrival and departure times, parking, bathrooms, where to store personal belongings, where they can sit, and introducing them to the staff. You know, there really are so many things to keep in mind when preparing to host a student or resident in the clinic. Something that I remember being very helpful is having clear expectations for the rotation. Yes, clarifying expectations is so important. It's typically helpful to review things like which patients should they see? How long should they take in a room? How do you want them to present? Will they write notes? It helps to get to know the student or the resident rotating with you. What rotations have they done already? What experiences have they had with children? What are his or her goals for the rotation? Remember that goals may not always be related to medical knowledge. Some other common goals that all physicians share, regardless of specialty choice, are related to communication and systems-based practice. And finally, what is their career plan? I think that's very helpful. If we know our learners' goals, we can modify the clinical experience to best fit their needs. It seems that having learners may create a new set of challenges for caring for patients in your clinic. How can our community pediatricians effectively incorporate medical students and residents into patient care? You know, there's several things you can do to get your office ready to host students and residents. It doesn't have to take a lot of time, and we can talk about some time-saving strategies later. First thing to do is to get your office ready. Let your staff know that you'll be having learners, and they can even help with orienting your guest. It may help to have a sign in your office stating that you're a designated teaching site and that they may see a student doctor before seeing their regular doctor. Introduce your student or resident and let everyone know that they are a part of the team. How your staff lets patients know matters as well. So what do you mean by how your staff lets patients know? Well, you want the staff to set a positive tone, saying something like, we're so excited that Dr. McLeod has a student Dr. Zach working with her today. Zach will come in first to see what's going on, examine your child, and then Zach and Dr. McLeod will come back in and see you together. Use a presumptive approach, like we do with vaccines, rather than asking, do you want to see a student today? Okay, that's really helpful. You mentioned earlier you have some time-saving tips. Can you mention a few of those? Sure. So first, it's important to realize that the learner doesn't have to see all of your patients. While your student or resident is seeing a patient, you can go see the next one or two, maybe even three, depending on the experience of your learner, and then circle back and hear about the first patient. If you have the ability to control your schedule, you can set it up with two in the first slot in the morning and afternoon and a short break in the middle or at the end of each session for teaching and catch-up. Okay, that sounds simple enough. Maybe I can schedule two patients at 8 a.m. so I can get started seeing my first patient and the student will also have a patient to see. Then I can try to free up some time maybe before lunch or the end of the clinic in the afternoon to allow for more dedicated teaching time. 
How many patients should I expect a learner to see in a half day of clinic? It really depends on the learner and the complexity of the patients and whether or not you expect them to write notes. An inexperienced student, especially early in the third year, may only see two or three patients in a half day. A more experienced student or resident may see up to five or six. In our clinic, we encourage learners to see as many patients as they reasonably can, but we also make sure they have adequate time to complete their documentation along the way so they're not in the office late completing their notes. What about the learner who spends too much time in the room and slows down your day? I have to admit that that one's a little tough for me because I tend to spend too much time in the room myself. Um, But it comes back to the idea of priming the learner about the chief complaint and letting them know your expectations ahead of time. You can also make it a challenge. So remind your medical students that on the USMLE Step 2 Clinical Skills exam, they'll have to see a patient in 15 minutes and write their note in 10 minutes. Have them set a timer when they enter the room, and they have to leave and present whatever they have at the end of that 15 minutes. With practice, their timing will improve. Thanks. Those are some great practical tips. How do you manage those challenging families or complex patients? Are those patients appropriate for learners to see? There are probably patients you don't want your learners to see. You know the ones, the difficult families, the super complex patients. Our students need the experience with those patients, but maybe not on the first day. And depending on the experience of the learner, you may have them shadow you for some of them first. Or at least prime them. Before you go to see the patient, give them some background information and be really specific about what they need to find out today. Don't let them get lost in the complexity. In fact, it can be helpful to prime the learner for the entire day. Taking five minutes at the start of the morning and the start of the afternoon to look at the schedule together and identify patients which may be good for the learner to see. This will also give them a good opportunity to read up on the patients ahead of time and make the encounter more meaningful. And then when you're talking to the family, have the learner listen so you don't have to say things twice. And think out loud. That shows the learner how your brain is processing what you hear and how you're weighing management options. It's a good way to communicate your clinical reasoning, which is hard to teach. I agree. Talking through our thoughts is probably something we don't do enough. I remember times during my clerkship discussing the history and physical exam with my attending, but not fully understanding why we decided on the plan. Talking through our clinical reasoning could be a very effective way to teach our students and residents these skills. Thanks, Dr. Leggio, for all those helpful tips. Transitioning to the inpatient setting, Dr. McLeod, are there any key differences on the wards? Yes. For years, I saw patients in both the inpatient and outpatient setting, but it has become apparent that these areas of practice are very different. Inpatient medicine consists of teamwork and collaboration with learners at different levels who have diverse backgrounds and skills. Since patients stay overnight and children with chronic medical problems may stay even longer, learners get to interact with their patients many times and build rapport. They often say they like inpatient better because there is more continuity and it provides for a plethora of learning opportunities. As an attending, this gives me more time to assess how learners think. I also get a good opportunity to see how they interact with other staff members and families. You mentioned teamwork. What role do learners serve on your team? I think the most important thing for students is to refine history taking and improve their physical exam skills. Since some of our patients have extended stays in the hospital, there is plenty of time for them to work on this. It is also important for students to start developing a pertinent differential diagnosis by applying their teaching from first and second year of medical school to the clinical setting. 
Students may at first feel extraneous, but they serve a vital role on the team because since they cover only a few patients, they get to spend more time talking with them. Often, they uncover some important historical information or knowledge about the social situation that is key to providing great care. For our residents, as they progress through their training, they should become more comfortable managing patients, developing leadership skills, and teaching the team. How many patients do you think medical students and interns should care for each day? I'm sure this will vary between different programs, but our students are usually on the inpatient service for two weeks. I have third-year students cover two patients the first week and follow three the second week. The fourth-year students should be prepared to cover up to five, depending on how advanced and comfortable they are, while typically we cap interns off at eight patients. Okay, thanks. Now that we've covered the general orientation and expectations, I thought that we might talk about how you incorporate teaching into everyday patient care. Dr. Leggio, do you have some favorite techniques that you like to use in the clinic? Yes, one of my favorites is the one-minute preceptor. It was described in the literature back in the 1990s, and it's a tried-and-true method to teach on the fly. It consists of five micro-skills for teaching. Before that, I like to prepare the learner by having them look at the chief complaint and think about what could be going on, and have them set a goal for the encounter, and give them a time frame to see the patient. When they come out to present, I ask, what do you think is going on? Yes, get them to commit to a diagnosis. That's right. And then I ask, why do you think that? You probe for supporting evidence to try to get a better idea of how they came up with the diagnosis. Yes, because even though they may be correct, their reasoning may be off. Then teach a general rule, a take-home point or a pearl. It could be knowledge, a physical exam technique, or a behavior change. Something like, whenever you see ABC, you should think about XYZ. Sometimes I also like to set a goal for them to work on with the next patient. For instance, work on the organization of their presentation, or I will suggest a reading assignment pertinent to the case we saw together. That's a great idea. Then I reinforce what they did well, and I correct errors by providing constructive feedback. That's why it's one of my favorite techniques. Not only am I teaching something new, I'm also giving the learner some direction for future learning. So in summary, the one-minute preceptor has four steps. First, have the learner commit to a diagnosis. Second, probe for supporting evidence and make the learner support their decision. Third, teach general rules and clinical pearls with emphasis on one or two take-home points. Finish up by reinforcing what was done well and correct errors through constructive feedback. Dr. McLeod, do you use the same techniques on the inpatient setting? Certainly I could, but since I'm usually rounding with a large group, it becomes more team-based learning and collaborative decision-making. Because of the group effort, it's important to pay attention to the introverts and not leave them out. For instance, I know from experience that I am an extrovert and Lisa is a quiet thinker. If you had us on rounds together, I would be shouting out ideas as she was carefully considering her answers. You just need to remember to incorporate everyone in the conversation. The SNAPS model can help illustrate how we do this while teaching a large group. What is the SNAPS model? SNAPS is an acronym that stands for Summarize, Narrow, Analyze, Probe, Plan, and Select. First, have the junior medical student briefly summarize the case and narrow the differential to two or three relevant possibilities. Now, a lot of students may not be able to do this early in the year, or their differential may not be pertinent. What do you do then? 
Good point, Lisa. If that's the case, I may have to look to the next level learner, for example, a fourth year student or intern to add to the differential, basically just ascending the ladder to more experienced learners until the differential diagnosis is complete. I like that. It's so important to ascend the ladder. That way, if a junior medical student knows the answer, but the resident doesn't, you don't make the resident look bad for not knowing it, yet they still learn from the student. Exactly. The next step would be to ask the senior resident to analyze the differential and rule in or out the different possibilities. I find students are excellent at adding rare diagnoses to the list, so it helps to have the resident share their experience of what is commonly seen and therefore the most likely diagnosis. The next step is the time for the attending to shine. Allow time for the team to probe you by asking questions to improve their understanding. Probing the preceptor makes this a learner-driven model that helps them identify their knowledge gaps and address them immediately. The scary thing about this model is that you won't always know the answer. That is so true. At times, it's hard to be vulnerable and confess that you don't know the answer, but it can be very valuable in several ways. First, you can invite the others to fill in your own knowledge gaps. Anatomy and physiology are certainly fresher in the students' minds, and family medicine residents help me with management of young adults. And second, you can model lifelong learning by looking up something on rounds or bringing an article later for the team to discuss. Thank you for giving me permission to say I don't know. That will help relieve some of the stress as I'm starting out. Yes, I've gotten good at saying it by now. I think it makes me more approachable and helps the learning process. Okay, back to SNAPS. Next as a group, you can make a treatment plan for the patient. And last but not least, select a case-related issue for self-directed learning. This can be a team assignment, or you can assign the task to a student who can teach the team the next day. I like assigning something for the students to teach. You can include the topic and how they did as part of your evaluation of the student. You can use the SNAPS model in the outpatient setting as well, but it requires some training of the student to let them know your expectations. So let's summarize the SNAPS model one more time. First, summarize the patient presentation and narrow the differential. Next, have your most experienced learner analyze the differential. Then allow the team to probe the preceptor for more ideas. Next, generate a plan for the patient and finally, select a learning topic for later. We will be sure to include a summary of the SNAPS model and all other tools we have discussed in our show notes on our website if you'd like to refer back. Dr. McLeod, what other suggestions do you have for us? Plenty, but let me leave you with just one helpful tip for teaching and assessing learners. All you need is a simple note card. Get every learner to write down two personal goals for the week on the card so you can work on them together. This helps me focus my teaching to be more applicable and aids in guiding my feedback later in the week. For instance, assign the patient with the neck mask to the student that's interested in oncology, and a student who thinks they might want to be a cardiologist might review cyanotic heart lesions for the team. The learners seem to really appreciate the time that we set aside to reflect on their personal goals and provide focused teaching and feedback. Thanks, that's really helpful. Dr. Leggio, do you want to give us a few points on how to provide effective feedback? Sure. There are several techniques that we'll explore in detail in a future episode. For now, it's important to know that feedback is formative. That means it isn't their grade, but it's to help inform their future actions, to help them form into a better physician. It should be specific, 
So what exactly did they do well or need to improve on? Not just good job. Timely, so give it to them as soon as possible after the action. And objective, ideally based on what you saw rather than what someone else told you. Yes, I also use that note card to write notes about what I've observed learners doing so that I can be specific when I give them feedback later in the week. I love that. It would work well in clinic as well. Ideally, feedback should end with a plan. So what exactly can the learner do to improve in the future? Many of our listeners will be familiar with the STOP acronym for feedback. Feedback should be specific, timely, objective, and finish with a plan. That's right. Stop to give feedback. Next, you need to evaluate your learner. Evaluation is summative. In summary, how did the learner do? Are they ready to move on to the next level? The evaluation is their grade. Usually the evaluation will entail some rating or ranking on whatever form the school or program requires. Written comments are usually required. It's really helpful if those comments are specific and give the program an idea about the student's strengths or opportunities for improvement. Lastly, it's nice to have the student reflect on their learning and take time for you to reflect on your teaching. What went well? What do you want to do better next time? Thanks again, Dr. Leggio. I think that is great information to help us provide meaningful feedback. As we're getting short on time, is there anything else that either one of you would like to mention before we finish? Remember, teaching that is focused on your learner's goals will likely be more meaningful for them. Get to know each of your learners and use each patient encounter strategically to help them be more prepared for the next step in their medical training. And if you haven't taught students in your practice before, I'd encourage you to give it a try. Reach out to your local academic center and they'll probably be thrilled to put you in contact with the person that runs the clinical education program. You can play a role in educating the next generation of physicians and maybe even recruit a few to pediatrics. Thanks so much for your time today. We'll have to have both of you back on for another education-related episode in the future. Thanks, Zach. Thank you. And thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Thank you to Dr. Chris White and Dr. Leela Stallworth for providing peer review and additional recommendation for today's discussion. We look forward to speaking with you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.